Okay, welcome. There's uh, some handouts out in the foyer, um, and then I think there's also one for Psalm 83 for next week, if you want to grab one on the way out, and uh, then we'll, we'll be almost done, um, but we'll wrap it up with a little kind of summary time. So Bill was asking if I could go over the chart that I handed out last week and explain that once more. Um, and um, you probably didn't bring that with you, but maybe the easiest way um, is to reteach that concept looking at another passage, and then um, you can look at um, the chart again, comparing those things, and, and that might help open it up. We, we were kind of rushed at the end. I think we can make it through Psalm 82, and I'm happy to do that. Um, reteaching is an important point, um, and uh, making sure that people get things, so I'm happy to, happy to do that. Let's do that this way. Um, why don't you take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy 30. So right now, before we get into Psalm 82, we'll just teach this concept of an intertext that I was getting across last week with Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3 and 4 in light of um, Psalm 81, also referring to Masa and Meribah. But if you pull up or turn to Psalm 30, we can, we can see the same concept demonstrated um, in, not Psalm 30, Deuteronomy 30, uh, together with... Um, how Paul quotes this passage in the New Testament. So, Deuteronomy 30 is one of the most important passages from the first five books of the Bible. We know not only because of how Paul treats it uh, in Romans, uh, but also uh, we know from extra-biblical material that this was an often quoted passage or alluded to passage uh, during the Second Temple period when they came back from exile. And perhaps, uh, so we don't spend too much time on this and get to Psalm 82, let me just give you a, a few illustrations about this. Notice how Psalm, or Deuteronomy 30 began. It says, when all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I have set before you, um, that falls on the heels of Deuteronomy 28 and 29, which are all about blessings and curses. So if you do these things when you're in the land, after the conquest, you'll be blessed. If you don't do these things, you'll be cursed. Um, <clears throat> and the ultimate curse, according to Moses, is to be kicked out of the land. Okay. So then when Deuteronomy 30 opens up, it says, when all these things have come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord has driven you. Um, so he's talking about those blessings and curses. But the first 14 verses of Deuteronomy 30 are all in the future, even though some of your English translations may not translate them that way. This is an insertion by Moses that's a future prophecy of the new covenant. So uh, we know that because if you keep reading, it says, and you return to the Lord your God and your children and obey his voice 
and all that I commanded you today with all your heart and all your soul. Okay, that's very common New Covenant language that we get in Jeremiah 31 and Jeremiah 32, a couple passages in Ezekiel, Isaiah 59. So he's talking about uh, this whole passage is an insertion looking forward to the time when after they've returned from the exile, what they were unable to accomplish in and of themselves in their own power, God is going to take the initiative and accomplish for them. And you remember in Deuteronomy 10.31, I believe, uh, God had commanded them to circumcise their hearts. It's an imperative. Um, it might be 10.16, can't remember off the top of my head, but if you just search, you can find it. And, um, well, they were unable to do that, okay? Um, so then when you come to verse 6 here, look what it says. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart in the future. That's in the future. So what they failed to do, they needed, they needed to have a changed heart. Um, God is going to initiate and accomplish as the agent of the action himself. So the Lord your God will circumcise the heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and you may live. Now when you get down to verses, uh, let's pick up at verse 11 and read through verse 14. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it too far off. It is not in heaven uh, that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it down to us so that we may hear and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us so that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Or that should probably even be rendered in the future. Uh, it, uh, the word is very near you. It will be in your mouth. It will be in your heart so that you can do it. So this whole, and then in verse 15, he picks up with the present audience again and starts stating conditionals. In other words, see, I have set before you today life and death if you obey the commandments, see? But the conditional clauses don't really start until verse 15. And that's very important for what I'm about ready to show you. So this is a prophecy of the new covenant, okay? That's in continuity with the covenant of grace in the old covenant period. But nevertheless, what Moses is saying here is um, God's going to initiate and accomplish and do what you are unable to do in and of yourself. Okay? And, um, and they're not asking for more wisdom. They're not asking for more information when they ask these rhetorical questions in verses 12 through 14. Who will go up to heaven um, that you should say? Okay, who will go beyond the sea that you should say? Who will go across the sea for us? Uh, what they need is they need the power to obey the law. And they don't have that power. But now they, they're, they're pining for that. You know, who, will, who will get us the power to enable us to do this? Okay? So in light of last week, um, we call this the pretext. Okay? So this is Deuteronomy 30. Okay? And... So this is, I give it this little sign as the pretext. And then what's going to happen is there's going to, so this is the pretext. 
Now when we turn to the New Testament, we're going to see that Paul's going to quote this passage. So turn over to Romans 10. And look at, well, we'll start at verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, and then a very important additional phrase, to everyone who believes. So in other words, that, that doesn't mean the law has no influence or effect on us as Christians anymore. It's still a perfect reflection of God's will for our lives, but now out of gratitude we obey it, not to enter into the world to come. So it's the end of the law as a condemning function, you know, like a covenant of works over our lives, accusing us that we haven't personally, perpetually, perfectly kept the law. Just like with an insurance of pardon, I'm trying to bring out those nuances, right? So we still have to obey the law out of gratitude, but nevertheless, as far as a covenant of works hanging over our head, condemning us, it's, it's done. Christ has done it, okay? But now notice what Paul does. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So what he's quoting there is Leviticus 18.5. Leviticus 18.5 is like a single lapidary statement that summarizes the law. So this may sound very radical to yours, but there are actually two ways to be saved. You can either be saved by law or you can be saved by faith, by grace through faith. Now, no mere human being after the fall can do the works of the law in such a way that can win the approval of God. Okay, so these are two mutually exclusive ways of salvation. So like the rich young ruler I read about this morning in the law, okay? All this I have done. And one of the other Gospels accounts says, and Jesus loved him. In other words, I think Jesus went, oh, isn't that nice? <laughs> and, uh, and then proceeds to put his finger on his live sin, Namely, covetousness, right? Because he's a rich man. And, um, and so, so um, no mere human being can, can do the works of law. And Leviticus 18.5 is what Paul quotes there. But then, over and against that, he sets up the antithesis of grace, the opposite. And, and to do that, so notice he quotes from Leviticus 18.5, Moses. And he quotes from Deuteronomy 30, also Moses. And he says, but the righteousness based on faith says, so now that's set over and against law. And what he's done there is he's personified faith. He's made it sound like it's a person. It's a concept, right? But he's made it sound like it's a person. Very powerful rhetorical tool. So, and he's quoting Deuteronomy 30. And he says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is, in parentheses, to bring Christ down. Or, who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So what he's doing there is he's contrasting law and gospel. Very clearly, okay? This is one of the best places to turn to see a law-gospel distinction, okay? 
and the law is represented by his quote of Leviticus 18.5. The gospel is represented by his quote of Deuteronomy 30. So basically he's saying, if I may paraphrase, Moses preached the gospel to you beforehand. He told you that God is going to circumcise your heart. Jesus is there in Deuteronomy 30. Okay, because it's talking about what the Messiah will do, not what they can do. So, so then, on analogy with what we were looking at last week with Hebrews 3 and 4, Bill, so Romans 10 now becomes our quotation text. So we put a T1 here to represent the quotation text or the new text. Okay. And then Q1. So this just represents the text, the pretext, T2. T1 represents the quotation text, which has a quotation embedded in it, embedded in it, right? Okay. And um, remember, I started out by saying last week, every text has what's called intra-textual coherence. So somebody could just read Romans 10 and understand Paul, what he's saying, without all the background. Somebody could read Psalm 118 without understanding the background of Zechariah 9 as well. Or John 12, and understand John 12 without understanding all the background of Psalm 118, right? That's the concept. But in a certain sense, there's thinner and thicker levels of understanding. So if you heard or read John 12, and you understood, which you understand more now, I would hope, you know, of Psalm 118 as background, now you have a thicker understanding of that quotation being used. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, here I have to tell you something that uh, Paul is doing that you won't be able to see because I don't have a handout, and so you'll just have to trust me on this. Um, but... <clears throat> This quotation belongs to this text and makes sense in and of itself. What Paul has done in taking these few verses from verses 12, 14, these little snippets, belongs to this and makes sense in and of itself. But now here's the key question that comes in in the center box with the non-equal sign. What if there's modification of the quote? Or I, I've struggled with what word to use perturbation, you know, modification, adjustment. So in the Hebrews passage, what he's done is he's modified the quote in Hebrews 3 and 4 from Psalm 95 by just dropping Genesis 2-2 in there. Someone said somewhere, it's kind of like Jonathan did introducing me this morning, okay, or, you know, about the Mexican fiesta thing we're going to do. And, uh, you know, so... He knows darn well that it comes from Genesis 2-2. He's being a little coy there, okay, with his audience. But now what if Paul also, he's quoting Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 through 14. Who will go up into heaven? Who will descend down to the pit? But what if he changes this quotation? He's not rewriting Moses. Paul wouldn't do that. The apostles don't rewrite, make up their own stuff, Okay. In our conservative view of scripture, there's one divine author, there's many human authors, but there's coherence to all the scripture. So unlike, I'm t now at this point I'm telling you something very different than you would get in a lot of institutions out there, or even churches, they would say, 
well, the apostles just rewriting Moses to make it fit his own day and his own meeting. No, what he's doing is he's adding and perhaps subtracting in this instance, and he's perturbing the text in order to tease out its fuller, if I could say baby meaning, inchoate meaning, back here in Deuteronomy, but he's bringing it out fuller. So what does he do? If we were able, and I had a handout I could put before you, Paul is relying on the Greek translation of Deuteronomy when he makes this quote. So almost all of Paul's letters, he's, he, he, he probably knew much of the Hebrew Bible by heart, if not the whole thing, seriously, in his mind. Because he was very well educated, and, and that, uh, in an oral culture, they, Jews memorized huge, huge uh, swaths of the Hebrew Bible. But we know that he also is constantly using the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, which is called the Septuagint. And so he's probably quoting the Greek. So if I were to line up Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 through 14, together with Paul's quote from Romans 10, right here, side by side, the first thing that you have to see is Paul has dropped three verbs from the Septuagint translation. And those three verbs all have to do with doing. He's just dropped them. So the verb is poeo, um, and it comes in different forms over here. And Paul just dropped it. Now, that begs a question. Why did Paul drop it? Well, what's his point? You can't do this in and of yourself. God's got to circumcise your heart. So don't think that you can do it. So he just drops three verbs. Do, to do, to do. Then, now you can probably see this from your English translation. Not only does he drop something, he also adds something. So who will go up into heaven? What does he add? Well, just look at your scripture. Well, let's see, yeah. Who will go up into heaven? Okay, that comes right out of Deuteronomy 30. Then the parentheses, that is to bring Christ down. That's not in Deuteronomy, right? That's Paul's interpretation of Deuteronomy. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul's also writing scripture. But he's saying, that's all about the incarnation. <laughs> you see? That's not there in Deuteronomy 30, but Paul's added it. The guy that caught, caught up to the third heaven, the guy who got smitten on the road to Damascus by the blinding light, namely Jesus, the guy who spent three years out in the wilderness, which was probably at Petra because it was the best interlibrary loan system in the world at the time. And so he goes out there to the desert to study for three years. That Paul has the authority to be able to add that line because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And then he says, and who will descend into the abyss? And then Paul adds, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. Oh, simple. Just You don't have to know the Septuagint, the Hebrew, and everything else. What's that about? Bring Christ up from the dead. Resurrection. So Paul's adding that and saying, when Moses said that, that's ultimately pointing to the resurrection of the Messiah from the dead. So Paul has created what we call an intertext. In other words, 
he subtracted something from the quote. He subtracted the verb to do, which occurs three times in the original. And you can't see that so much here. I wish, you know. But I thought this would be the easiest way to answer your question to get this idea of intertext. And then he's also added something. He's added two very important lines that show this kind of Christ-centered focus of Moses. Moses was really, people, Moses was really talking about the Messiah uh, being incarnate and rising from the dead. And that's how God is ultimately going to initiate and accomplish what you can't do in and of yourself. So, because Paul has done that, so now this quotation text does not equal the quotation text, strictly speaking, of that. Because he's subtracted something and he's added something. So now you, the reader, come in here. And James was exactly right. How can I get away with doing this when I emphasize the reader so much and not the quote-unquote original author because of the coherence of our understanding of Scripture as a whole and the canon of Scripture? 66 Bibles, or 66 Bibles, 66 books in the Old and New Testament. So this, because something's been subtracted, to do, to do, to do, and something's been added to bring Christ down, so namely the incarnation, something subtracted, and something's been, no, something's been added, bring Christ down means the incarnation, and to, raise, uh, to go up from the grave, uh, that's resurrection, added, then these, this and this are no longer exactly the same. And, and he's creating a careful, a careful reader He's creating in you and in your mind. I mean, um, people who deal very high levels with theory of how illusions work. He's basically created in your mind, and I've created in your mind now, a question-begging synapse in your mind to say, what's he talking about? <laughs> right? That, that tells you, tells you to, to interpret the illusion because you begin to look at these patterns and you go, oh my goodness. Paul's like interpreting this for us. Moses was preaching the gospel beforehand. They were under the law and Moses told them they're not going to obey. In fact, he told them before they even went into the land, you're going to screw up. You're, you're not going to be able to do it. You're going to fail. Ultimately, you're going to be exiled. And then God's going to bring you back. But ultimately, a Messiah will come who will be a true son of Israel, and he'll do what you can't do. That's what he's talking about beforehand. And now Paul sees it all. And so he goes, it's not about your doing. The only conditionality of this covenant is unilateral. God does it. Now, there is conditionality once you're in the covenant. Okay? But not to get in. Now, once you're in, you have to obey and, and strive for holiness by God's grace. Okay? But Paul sees it all. And so he creates this tension between the original text and his quotation text to, you know, don't get lost in the symbols. The symbols are just meant to, to, to demonstrate to you or show you what he's doing to engage you as the reader. And guess what? This happens all over the place in Scripture. 
So you open up the prologue to Mark, and Mark, and then the prologue to Mark, he says, Isaiah says, and guess what? He's actually conflating about three different allusions from different places in Scripture. And so one thing you can grow in in your Bible study is to say, and you can get help doing this by reading a study Bible or even looking at, you know, the middle, middle part, you know, with the references and go, well, what's he doing? You know, by, by conflating these passages, he's inviting you to have a thicker understanding of what he's saying. Beginning to make sense now? <laughs> okay. All right. So take, take this example and then, you know, the sheet from last week can go back and look at what he's doing by inserting in his overall quotation and dealing with Psalm 95 by inserting Genesis 2-2 in that section. He's, he's basically getting them to think about the rest being future that you're going to enter. Um, and that, that's not been fulfilled yet because it's not about Canaan. Joshua couldn't take them there. It's about a heavenly Canaan. And God's taking you there. And Hebrew audience, don't the writer to the Hebrews, don't be so stubborn and don't be so Pollyannish thinking about the good old days and nostalgic that you want to go back there. That was their problem in the book of Hebrews. They wanted to go back to the old ways. They wanted to go back to, to you know, Sinai and, and, and the rituals and the blood and guts and everything else. And the writer of Hebrews is going, no, you don't want to go back there. Why would you want to go back there? I've taken you, God, Christ has taken you something better. Hebrews 12. You worship, as we did Sunday morning, just a little while ago, at the foot of the heavenly Mount Sinai. Uh, Sinai with the church of the firstborn. Who are those? Everybody in Hebrew 11. All the saints who believed ahead of time about the Messiah to come. So we're actually caught up worshiping in the heavenlies, even though we're sitting here on Mass Boulevard, with the church of the firstborn, all those who are in Christ. Don't go back. Why would you want to go back to that stuff? When you've been brought to something that's more glorious, that's his point. And, and by the way, if you go back and you go all in, wanting to go all back, you may not enter this rest. Just like some of them didn't enter the rest. That's his message. See, and he's... <laughs> this is not just like your pastor standing up and uh, we're, we're not to be masters of the word. Maybe it sounds like you're going, oh man, this is pretty technical and everything. And I can never do that. And it's like, well, actually you can't. <laughs> You can open up your prologue and Mark and go, what's he doing there? You know, and go back and read the fuller context, the canonical context, and go, oh, that's what he's doing. It's a message of judgment as well as, it's a message of judgment to the Jews, but it's a message of salvation to everybody else who's going to come. And he's kind of doing all that in a very tight prologue. But this is, this is a form of communication where um, the pastor doesn't just, we teach authoritatively, hopefully, and, and we're accountable. So even when I exercise my office, the technical term in the confessions are several, severally. In other words, separated as an individual. You know, whether I'm visiting a hospital, whether I'm preaching here, I'm still accountable to my organic ecclesiastical body, in this case, the OPC. I'm a man 
who's under account. So even when I, when, when I exercise that individually, I'm, I'm also still jointly connected with the other rank of ministers who, who are accountable to our church body. And there is a sense in which I don't, because we have fraternal relations in our denominations, I'm acting in a sense on behalf of the OPC as well as individually. Does that make sense? But we have fraternal relations, so we can do that. Um, but this is also, now this may sound a little dangerous, but don't worry, I'm, I'm all in confessionally. <laughs> so this is also a form of con communication that I'm asking you to be relationally involved in the communication. See, sometimes we're kind of mystical about, oh, Lord, accomplish your purposes with your word. Well, that's not just me standing up and telling you what to do or telling you this is what you should think and this is how, I mean, we do do that in a sense. But also, it's in a sense pointing these kind of things out and trusting that the Spirit guides us all into truth and invites you to answer the questions that the text is begging. That may sound a little loosey-goosey for some of you, but you know what? That's the way language works. It's relational. And, and, and there, there's controls. What are the controls? Well, the fact if I tell you something heretical, then the guy sitting in the back is going to take me out to lunch, minimum. <laughs> uh, or um, the canon of Scripture. This isn't you can make a text whatever you want it to be. Okay, there's criteria, namely, you know, the, the, that, we, that we're uh, constrained by. So it's not free-floating. All right, so I took... It's okay, though. It's important. I think it's important to understand some of this, and actually, you can do this with your English Bible and cross-referencing. And, you know, if you don't understand it after I leave, just ask Danny. Danny will explain it to him. <laughs> Hopefully. You got to go? Okay, well, good. I'm glad that we answered your question. All right. See you. Safe travels. All right. All right, on to Psalm 82. We'll start. That's, that's all right. We've got a little cush time um, here at the end, uh, God willing. So we're coming up on the end of, uh, of uh, this thing on the Asaphic Psalms I wrote. And um, so we'll just get started. And we'll pick up on Psalm 82, uh, you know, right wherever we leave off next week. No big deal. All right. So... Um, we need to end at 12, right? 12.05, 12? 12.05, okay. That helps me know how to plan. Okay, so what we'll do is um, let me read the psalm, and then um, we'll talk about it. And we won't be able to cover everything here. And I might even leave you with some questions, just like Bill had some questions, and I'm sure some of the rest of you had questions about last week. And then we'll just come back and rewind and, and cover this next week and then probably do Psalm 83 the following week, which still fits. So Psalm 82, uh, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly? 
show partiality to the wicked and give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. For they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge of the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Okay, so... Um, as I start out, um, any biblical scholar who works on the Psalms know this particular psalm, particular psalm has received enormous attention. Uh, one guy says it's the single most important text in the entire Christian Bible. That's interesting. And um, it's difficult, though. And um, maybe to keep in unity and coherence with what we've looked at, remember Psalm 50 was the first Asaphic psalm we looked at. And there, remember, the claim was made that God's divine justice breaks in from the heavens, okay? And so we see a lot of connections in this psalm to that notion that God's justice and his voice as judge is breaking in from the heavens. Um, So as far as genre, I think this fits a kind of prophetic genre, it's uh, what we call sui generis, though. In other words, it's a genre unto its own. It's, there's nothing quite like Psalm 82 in the rest of the Psalter. And, um, so, but one of the biggest issues here in the psalm is to understand how God's name is applied to different parties, or maybe to ask that question in a different way, is um, in Hebrew it looks like this. <clears throat> Elohim, uh, but then there's also shorter forms of this in the psalm, like El. And maybe it'd be easiest, and given the time restrictions, I'll give you the bottom line, and, and then we can rewind and talk about the details when we gather together next week. So this term is actually applied to three different parties in the psalm. It's applied to the one true God. It's applied to his holy angels. And it's also applied to human rulers, okay? Um, That's a big question. Um, I think I've mentioned Ugarit in here. Since since we discovered all these texts from what's called Ugarit, so if I make a map of Canaan, you know, there's the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. And then up here there was this port city called Ugarit, where all the material about Baal uh, was discovered. So we used to only know about Baal, Baal in the Bible, which you've read about, I'm sure, uh, from the Bible. But then we discovered this major port city up here uh, in a language called Ugarit, in these Ugaritic texts, <clears throat> where they had a uh, pantheon of gods. So not one true God, but a pantheon of gods. And so that caused a lot of people to reread this psalm to think perhaps God has taken his place in his divine counsel. So that in Hebrew is B'nai El. So that comes right out of Ugarit as well. So here the idea is God may be speaking among other deities of a lesser 
significance or height. <clears throat> and so that's the way a lot of people interpret this psalm, is that God is making a declaration in the midst of other gods. Now that's problematic because then you have a psalm uh, that is conceding there might be lesser divinities that God is actually um, you know, uh, saying exist. And that's against the backdrop of the alleged claim that the Hebrews developed over time to monotheism. So they first of all believed in what's called henotheism, so that there are many gods, but they all claim one god is the most significant and important, and then evolved into um, a belief in monotheism, one true god. Um, I don't think that's correct for the psalm. I think actually a better way to understand the psalm is that um, and this is a very old and traditional view, it's the view of John Calvin, for whatever it's worth, that um, the term God or gods is applied to God and his holy angels and also to human rulers. So let me explain. Um, when you look through the uh, psalm, notice it says, uh, God has taken his place in the divine council. Okay, so that's, first of all, the one true God has taken his stand in, the count, in, in, in his divine council. So this would be like a kingly court with his you know, uh, retinue standing there ready to do his bidding, his ambassadors, okay? And the scriptures often talk in that way, that God is enthroned in the midst of his angels. So think about Isaiah 6, when Isaiah goes into the throne room and he sings all these seraphs, you know, flittering around. Or think about Micaiah in 1 Kings 22. And Ahab wants to know if he should go out to war. And he goes, but don't bring that guy Micaiah in because he always prophesies badly about me, right? Well, they bring Micaiah in. He just, he, he was a guy with a lot of courage. So he just says what's on his mind, which happens to be true. And, uh, and then he gets cold cocked for it. And, um, but when he's under that persecution, he looks up and he sees the divine courtroom. And remember, you have an angel, God actually consulting among his angels and says, who will go for me into this battle to be an inciting spirit? And one of the angels says, I'll go. Okay, so you can read about that in 1 Kings 22. So this is a real phenomenon that the scriptures describe all over the place. There's many other places too we could turn. But what's happening in this psalm is God is standing in the, his heavenly council, okay, in the midst of his Benel, and uh, then he's addressing human rulers who are also called Elohim, gods. Um, so you can be called Elohim and not be a true god. It's just a designation for a human ruler of high standing. And, and what does he accuse them of? Well, basically he says, you kings are not doing what you're supposed to do in a common grace situation. You're supposed to provide for the widow and the oppressed and the destitute and the outcast. You're not doing that. Rather, you're advocating for the unjust. You're being unjust, okay? And so he says, why aren't you judging the poor and the widow? In other words, advocating on their behalf. Okay, as kings, as rulers. That's what you should be doing, and you're not doing that. Okay, and you don't have judicial to discernment to do that. Okay, you're failing in your judicial responsibilities. You're failing in your discernment about what you ought to be doing. And so then he, he 
turns into a prophet. Now, remember I said prophets are like lawyers. So he brings his brief against these rulers and says, um, you should be advocating against, I mean, for these people as opposed to advocating for the unjust. And then, <clears throat> and then he says, so you're going to die like men. Okay? Um, and uh, you will fall. Okay? That's basically what he says. Uh, so like a man, you will die. Uh, like one of the princes, you will fall. And then at the very end, we're probably back to the voice of the psalmist who says, Arise, O God, and judge the earth, for you will inherit all the nations. Um, so does that make sense so far? I see a little bit of skepticism in your nonverbal communication, but, um, but now we'll let the Apostle John prove the point. So turn to John chapter 10. And the context you want to look at here is especially verses 34 through 39. So, but to put it in context, I want to respect the time. So to put it in context, let me just paraphrase. Remember, Jesus makes this proclamation in the midst of the doctors of the church, the Pharisees and the scribes. He says, I and the Father are one. And that was highly offensive to them, right? How do we know it was highly offensive to them? They wanted to kill him. So right there, you don't, you don't have to be you know, present to, to evaluate that speech intercourse. It was highly offensive because they take up stones. They think he's committed blasphemy. That's right. And so then he says in verse 34, um, well, here, 33. Well, the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to God. Then Jesus answered them, verse 34, is it not written, I said you, uh, in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. I am not doing the works of my Father. Then, uh, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So he's quoting this psalm. And he's saying, if I could paraphrase, he's going, well, basically you Pharisees know the scripture better than anybody in the crowd. If you had true judicial discernment as leaders, you would recognize the Son of God is in your midst. And I'm not making a blasphemous statement by saying the Father and I are one. Uh, but you don't recognize that. You're not exercising the judicial discernment that you've been given by being called Elohim. Uh, and and um, so that's what that should be expected. But you guys are dolts. You don't get it. You're foolish. I mean, this is a prophetic indictment against them who are watching and, and looking on. And so, <clears throat> so, uh, so too, that kind of thing is what's going on in Psalm 82, is uh, basically uh, God is indicting uh, earthly rulers, kings, who are not doing their uh, job uh, to advocate on the part of the widow, the orphan, the poor. And um, so he says, uh, you know, instead they're doing just the opposite. And he's saying, well, that's wicked. 
and um, therefore you will die. And you need to get this straightened out and exercise judicial discernment. That's the bottom line. <laughs> Questions? <laughs> we have like three minutes. Paul? Right. That's right. Oh, yeah, he's constantly bringing indictment against them for not taking care of their parents, for, you know, turning things on their head and misusing money. So somebody in the class is asking a question, could this be a, uh, said of Rome as well? This is being recorded. Uh, and I think the answer is yes, that could be an, a fair extended application. So the Reformation started on the heels of uh, collecting indulgences from poor poverty-stricken people in order to build St. Peter's Cathedral. And... Um, so that's what made Luther so upset. And, um, and you could find a lot of other examples of that. I mean, I, I remember we were traveling deep in Mexico out of Puebla area. And uh, we were in a city that had 365 churches in it. And at the same time, we're wandering around looking at these beautiful churches with all the mosaics and poverty-stricken everywhere. You know, kids unkempt, untaken care of, you know, and sewage and trash in the streets and everything else. And, and so we were at a bus stop. We were going to get a ride back to Puebla, and this architect picked us up. We usually wouldn't just take a ride from anybody, but we, I profiled this guy, and I think we were safe. And, uh, and uh, so he gave us a ride back to you know, the bus station in Puebla, and, and then he said, yeah, I'm an architect. And I go, why in the world is there 365 churches here? And they're beautiful, especially in the midst of all this poverty. He goes, well, it's superstitious. They wanted one church for every day of the year, and they beautified them and poured all kinds of money in them, you know, on the backs of a lot of poor people, basically. Those are just a couple examples. But yeah, I think that would be a fair extended application. I mean, I'm trying to get at the intent of the psalm. You're raising a question about whether this could be extended application. I think more immediately, you know, we're not Pharisees, we're not Sadducees, we're not scribes, but perhaps the more immediate application for everybody is recognize the Messiah has come into your midst. Who, you know, who has gone up into heaven? Uh, I mean, who, who has come down to earth? As Paul would say in Romans 10, Christ. Uh, who has descended from the grave? Christ. Uh, that's his claim on us, not to be dolts, but have proper discernment to recognize that the Messiah has come, and he's the king that now demands our honor and obedience, right? Okay, so take this paper, and if you get a chance, read it over this week. Bring your questions next week, and, and maybe we'll have a foot in Psalm 82 and a foot in Psalm 83, and we'll just make progress. Let me pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. Uh, we do pray that you would continue to open up our eyes to new things in your scripture, uh, though we could study it our whole lives long, and even with our every waking hour, Lord, we know we just begin to 
break the service of uh, uncovering the treasure trove of jewels that are there. So, Father, we pray that you would reveal new things to us, and not that we may be puffed up, but we may use uh, truths to uh, not only um, become more obedient to you and apply it to our own lives, uh, but also uh, to share with others for their uh, mutual edification. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.